Oh, yeah. Welcome back. This is the Passball Show right here on EMTR Radio Network. We're going to open things up with a quick interview. We'll start out by speaking with former Major League catcher Matt Wolbeck. So I'll play you that interview, and we'll get into some other stuff. So listen up. Hi, it's John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm here with former Major League catcher Matt Wolbeck. Matt, what's going on, buddy? Hey, not much, John. Just taking out from Northern California and getting ready for a little baseball today.
unfortunate for him, and you know, unfortunately things didn't end as well as they as people would have wanted to towards the end of the 
So I hope you guys enjoyed your interview or the little discussion with Matt Wahlbeck. But uh, a couple things we're going over. Base is empty blog, johnpielli.com. Feel free to check that out, of course, right here. And, of course, all my uh, posts are shared right here on the MTR media, www.mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli. But uh, I was talking about the other Brett the other day. And uh, I think the we were the, within the last week was the anniversary of one of uh, – Ken Brett's best games. He threw a shutout. He ended up uh, coming up with a with a with a base hit in the second game of the doubleheader. And uh, here's a guy that doesn't get a lot of uh, discussion about him because he played in the shadow of his younger brother, who of course ends up becoming a Hall of Famer. But Ken Brett. I tell you, interesting to me because here's a guy that uh, came up, you know, the early, you know, late '60s, you know, I think it was 1967 in the World Series as a rookie at age, uh, I think it was 19. No, no, he's 18 in the 1967 World Series. He only pitched in one game at, towards the end of the season with the Red Sox. Ends up pitching in a World Series as a lefty reliever, and you know, goes through a couple tough times, you know, through a couple different teams. Ends up playing with Milwaukee and probably has his best success with the Pittsburgh Pirates and of course has uh, you know that that game which uh, you know ends up throwing a uh, I believe a shutout in the first game or no he took a no hitter into the ninth inning and then shuts out the Padres in the first game of a doubleheader and then after that has a two run pinch hit triple now one thing about Ken Bread and it's not a surprise because of the genes uh, you know could, could you imagine a pitcher you know being George Brett bro- Brett's brother and being a good hitting pitcher here's a guy who's one of the better hitting pitchers of his generation and one thing that hurt him of course was the fact that he was ineffective at certain times inconsistent as a starting pitcher staying in the major leagues for a certain period of time he bounced around for so many different teams but here's a guy that probably could have had a career as a hitter or maybe as a, a pitcher who could hit and pinch hit and kind of play some different roles and you know you get into this stage in baseball where you're seeing pitchers make that transition whether it's a Rick Ankeel whether it's an Adam Lowen and you think of some guys that ended up not making it as a pitcher but becoming uh, uh, position players Ken Brett probably would have been the best example of a guy that could have done it in the 1970s. You know, the only thing is, as a lefty pitcher, there was a lot of a demand for him, and you could see, you could tell by the time that he was traded so many different times. He was traded six times in about four years and seven months, really showing the demand of a left-hand pitcher that could both start and relieve. Uh, Obviously, that demand was pretty high in Major League Baseball. Uh, But here's a guy that hit 262 for his career, 10 home runs, 44 RBI. 18 doubles and 347 at bats. He had an OPS of 698 for his career. And it's a number that's comparable to a lot of everyday players. Not great players. I mean, you're not talking about a guy that OPS is over 800, which is really the trademark of a, of a average player to a good player. But as an average major league player, his 698 OPS would have been very comparable to just about anybody that was playing on an everyday basis. He was used as a pinch hitter, but because of the DH implemented in Major League Baseball in 1972. That changed to, to a point where this guy could not kind of, you know, maybe he missed you know some of his best chances to hit in 1976, 1977. Some of his better years with the White Sox and the Angels. And, you know, you know, it's unfortunate to see the guy that probably could have established himself, probably could have made more of himself as a big-time hitter. And, it, you know, it was unfortunate to really get to see that as far as things going on. But Ken Brett, uh, you know, a guy who was a very good pitcher, not maybe maybe even a better hitter. And, uh, you know, doesn't really get looked at too much, of course, because he played in the shadows of his brother, who he ended up becoming teammates with in 1980 and 1981 with the Kansas City Royals. But, you know, you look at some guys out there and one guy that certainly could be sought after when it comes to the trading deadline, and that's Alfonso Soriano. And here's a guy that is not off to the greatest of starts for the Chicago Cubs. And he's a guy that, you know, does present a conundrum when it comes for teams that are looking to add that extra bat as the, you get towards the trading deadline. Obviously, a little while away. We're only in, we're only uh, entering June in a couple days. So you're looking at this in a situation where here's a guy that 
probably could be had for the right price. But two things have to happen. Number one, Alfonso Soriano probably has to produce a little more than he is right now. He had a very good season for the Chicago Cubs last year. He, he had over 30 home runs. He really was one of the more underrated sluggers in the game, not because nobody knew who he was, but because nobody really paid attention to what he did last season. I mean, he, he was just about right at his career OPS last year. Uh, for the fifth time in his career, he hit 30 home runs. Um, he had, you know, a, a, a considerable amount of doubles. Was a guy that was probably sought after a little bit at the trading deadline last year. And maybe the Cubs just had the price it a little too high, hoping that they could move on and kind of swoop in and maybe get him while the team was a little desperate and wanted to give up a little more top-end prospects. But uh, obviously, Jed Hoyer and Theo Epstein would have interest in moving Alfonso Soriano for the right price. And I think this is a situation where things aren't going to ha- really happen right now. The Cubs are not looking so good. It, they could There's reports that they could already be considering and thinking about making that move, maybe start selling a little earlier than some other teams because of the expectations and the long-term goals of this team. And Alfonso Soriano is in a spot right now. And at this very moment that I'm saying this, is hitting, or I, that I wrote the article on Bases Empty Blog, he was hitting 262, four home runs, 16 RBIs. Not necessarily tearing it up, but at the same time, he's not in a position where you could say he was definitely struggling. So here, here's a guy that could maybe have a good month, maybe hits 10 to 12 home runs next month, gets himself in a position where teams could picture his bat in the middle of their order and whether you, you, are, you are a team that's maybe looking at this year as, as your year to compete. Maybe the Philadelphia Phillies could use him. Maybe the St. Louis Cardinals could use him. Maybe a team like Texas. We talked about Texas this whole offseason into the season and obviously they're doing a phenomenal job for a team that didn't go out there and replace a Josh Hamilton in their lineup. The thing it's going to come down to Listen, Jed Hoyer, Theo Epstein, they want something for him. They, they want to know that the player or players that they're getting back are types of players that could come and help on an everyday basis and help this team turn the corner as the Cubs look to erase that ridiculous curse of all those years that it's been since 1908, since they've won a World Series. Obviously, they were the first team in Major League Baseball history to win two World Series in a World Series era. And they have not won one since their second World Series in 1908. But listen, we're going to take our first break of the program here. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Back after. Welcome back, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take you right into our next interview I recorded this past week with former Major League pitcher Bob Friend. And Bob Friend won 197 games in his career, pitching mostly for the Pirates in the 1960s. And, of course, was one of the members, one of the very good pitchers that they had and a staff that had Harvey Haddix and Elroy Face and a team that won the World Series in 1960. So I'm going to play this interview with uh, Bob Friend. Enjoy. Hi, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Bob Friend. Uh, Bob, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Okay, nice to be with you. Yeah, definitely, man. Now, you know, you, you had a good chance. Uh, you, know, you spent a good portion of your career pitching for the Pittsburgh Pirates and, you know, and around, around the 50s. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experiences in the, in the Pirates, with the Pirates. Um, 
late 60s season, which I, which I always find is very interesting. Obviously, the, the Pirates did a great job winning the pennant in the National League that year. But the World Series was very interesting against the Yankees. Uh, the Yankees, the three games that they won, they won, you know, uh, convincingly. And the Pirates were able to win, win three close games. Uh, was there any point in that series that you, you felt like you were just barely hanging in against the Yankees with the offense and, and the, their ability to score all those runs? Well, we were playing a great Yankee team. You know, typical Yankees, a great organization, great teams, and great players. But, you know, we had an experienced team that, uh, that really fought to win that National League better. You know, we beat some good teams like the Milwaukee Braves, the Cardinals, the Dodgers, and uh, we were in the race right up to the end. And uh, we had a lot of confidence from the, from the way that we won the National League pennant. We won probably 34, 30 or 40 games coming from behind in the seventh inning on. And uh, that gave us a lot of confidence. We knew we had an uphill battle with the Yankees, but we never gave up. Yeah, no question. And I tell you, game, game seven of the 1960 World Series was really one of the one of, one of the greater games that had really have been played. I mean, I, I'm sure you could go back and find a couple games that are up there with it. But as far as you know, as far as the, around the time, it was one of the one of the best games ever played from the back and forth and everything. Obviously, culminating with the Mazeroski home run in the ninth inning. Your 
lot of uh, a lot of baseball players now seem to be more into the statistics than they were back, you know, when you played. That's true. They have more stats. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you finished your career three wins shy of getting 200. Were you, were, were you, as you were pitching, let's say in 1966, were you uh, steadfast on feeling like you had to win 200 games, or was it something that you were just out there doing the best you can to help your team? Well, that's true. I was out there just trying to do it. Every time I was called on to do a good job, you know, of course I would like to uh, have one over 200. I had plenty of opportunities to do that. But, you know, it didn't happen, but uh, that's not the end of it, you know. That, I, I had a good career, and uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah, you absolutely did. Listen, Bob, I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate you being part of the program. And, listen, maybe I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Okay, nice talking to you, Doc. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bob. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Great spot there by Bob Friend, the longtime pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And uh, listen, I definitely enjoyed talking with him. Great job. And like I said, dude, um, always great to be able to speak to a guy that had the opportunity to pitch in an era where I think, you know, baseball was kind of at its best. I mean, to me, the late 50s, the early 60s, you know, it's a totally different time then. And it is great to great to get get a chance to speak with a guy like Bob Friend. But uh, moving forward, Passball Show, of course, MTR Radio Network. Uh, do have one more interview we're going to try to get into, but I do want to go back like we always do, kind of a, a you know ret- retrospective type of thing here that we always try to do, talking about times in baseball history, different times. Of course, you got into the 60s with Bob Friend. We talked a little bit earlier about Ken Brett getting into the 70s, and we're going to take a spot maybe even a little bit further. Talk about the early part of the 1900s and a pitcher by the name of Smokey Joe Wood, and kind of get a transition into something we talked about before when we talked about Ken Brett and how good of a hitter that he was, and he was stuck pitching because he was a lefty, and that was probably his best spot for him. But a guy, here's another guy that made that transfer a transition from being a pitcher to an outfielder. And, of course, we talked about Rick Ankeel, and you talked about Adam Lowen, who was in spring training with the Mets last season. But here's really the first guy to make an impact at that level, and that was Smokey Joe Wood. And if you look at Smokey Joe Wood, he came even before Babe Ruth because the first person you think of, what great pitcher became a great position player. Of course, Babe Ruth is the answer. But before Babe Ruth was Smokey Joe Wood. And Smokey Joe Wood in, in, in 1912 was the best pitcher on the Boston Red Sox staff as they won their first World Series. And, you know, Smokey Joe Wood was as dominant of a pitcher as could be at his time. Babe Ruth put up some good numbers as a pitcher. 94 and 46 in his career. 228 ERA. 107 complete games. You know, Wood went 34-5 and five with a 1.91 ERA in 1912. 35 complete games, 10 shutouts. He proved himself as a dominant pitcher at his time. He had some injury problems. He was 15-5, and five, 149 ERA for the 1915 World Series Championship, which also included Babe Ruth. Now, the unfortunate thing you know, that happened there was after 1915, he gets in a contract dispute with the owner of the Boston Red Sox. Wood wants to get paid like he did when he went 34 and 5. Now he went 15 and 5, 149 and one in 1915, and the Red Sox felt that he couldn't perform at that elite level that he did just about three years before. He gets in a contract dispute. He sits out the 1916 season, and what do the Red Sox do? They win the World Series again with Babe Ruth pitching and the whole thing. So after sitting out the season, he ends up being uh, he moves on to the Cleveland Indians, Indians, and he joins teammate. Tris Speaker, who, who also played with him in Boston. He, he has a hard time initially um, kind of making the switch to the role um, as, as, a, as an outfielder. He becomes a role player over a couple seasons and of course what ends up happening and he, be, he ends up playing against uh, you know, the New York Yankees in a 19 inning game um, on a, in a rare occurrence. He hits two home runs, kind of getting himself into the whole, uh, the, the whole routine as an everyday outfielder. And you know, Smokey Joe Wood, as good of a pitcher as he was, he, he, he became a very good outfielder but really uh, in, a, in, a, in a move that nobody really anticipated 
anticipated at the time. He just up and quits. He, he stopped playing after probably his best season. We ends up hitting 297, drives in 92 runs in 1922. And, you know, there was no explanation for him stop playing at, at, you know, at that point. Maybe it was a point that he wanted to be a pitcher so bad that he just, you know, after becoming a good everyday outfielder, he says, hey, I can do it. And just up and quits. To me, something that I don't, I don't get at all. But uh, Smokey Joe Wood, really the first example before Babe Ruth of, of a solid pitcher, a Hall of Fame type pitcher that made the transition to be a position player like you're seeing a lot more nowadays. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to have in studio with me the great Roger All. And I and always, always a pleasure to have you stop in. Well, you know, we talk a lot about history. And you always heard me tell you that, you know, you got to know the past just as well as the future or the future or the present. And I'm glad, you know, that you listened to me. I mean, how many people know who the devil Smokey Joe Wood is? I mean, come on. I'll tell you, man, there's a lot of interesting stories and I always get into and, I, you know, shameless plug again for me. But, you know, this is my show. But JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty blog. Anybody that's listening, get into it. I mean, I basically break down something historical, usually on every other day basis. And I, I kind of go back and forth between historical and conventional. You know, I like to keep you up with what's going on now, but always like to kind of take a dive into the past because the, the history of Major League Baseball is something that, that's just phenomenal. And for those that don't follow it, on a regular basis, I think you're missing out. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I've always, you know, it, 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 it just is fascinating for me to look back at the past as it is to, you know, looking at the, the present day ball players, and, you know, being a diehard Mets fan that I am uh, and that I have been over the last almost 40 years now, you know, I always like going back. Uh, you know, the funny thing is today on this date in 1977, the Mets lost both ends of a doubleheader to the Montreal Expos. And basically, uh, uh, Joe Frazier, who was the manager of the Mets at the time, was shown the door after game two. And the next day, Joe Torrey was named Mets manager. And the Mets reeled off like something like uh, three or four in a row. And, and uh, they looked like they were starting to turn the corner. Obviously, that went south fast. But you know what I'm saying. Once they traded Tom Seaver all that uh, came to an end but you know I like going back in the past and talking about this date in history and things of that nature some people think you're crazy but you know what you got to know your past just as well as the present. Nah, I tell you, when people tell me, uh, you know, they think I'm crazy, I'm like, I know I'm crazy. Well, as long as you admit it. As long as you admit it. That's not the issue here. Well, that's true. But I tell you, you bring up something interesting because, you know, you look at the history and obviously, you know, I've followed the New York Mets since 1962. Obviously, I was not around in 1962. But, right. you know, I get to I you. go back you, and you can pick out the marvelous Marv Throneberries and uh, Richie Ashburn coming from Philadelphia to New York and he hit 300 that his first year with the exactly. Mets. And 1962, uh, you know, and he was, of course, a Hall of Famer as, as well as a broadcaster for Philadelphia for many years. So, yeah, you go back and you look at those. Uh, Gil Hodges played for the Mets in 62. Yeah, he did. I mean, you look at that team really from all the star players that were on that team. But they were all, at this and point, they were so past their prime that it was almost like nostalgic. Yeah. It was like, welcome to Old Timers Day here in 1962. But I'm going to become an old timer very fast if I don't go back and teach yeah. my class. But you know what? I just want to come in here and say you're doing a great job. Uh, I, I enjoy your show. You're a Mets fan. I like that. And uh, just make sure you plug uh, me and, and Brett Luthner's show tonight from 12, the overtime show from 12 to 2 a.m. tonight. Otherwise, I'll come back after you. Nah, you got it, man. Listen, Thanks a lot, Roger. You got it. That is the great Roger All, and of course, you know one of one of the guys that certainly has a very good influence on me, and you know where, where I've come to, you know where I am in broadcasting, and you know the guy obviously could come in here anytime, and I will definitely put up a mic for him. But you know, great, great to get the special guest there from Roger All. But uh, what we're gonna do is, uh, you know, we're gonna jump into our first break of the hour. Um, after that, we do have an interview with uh, Chad Moeller that we're gonna play for you. So uh, thanks a lot. John P.L.A. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this. Welcome back. John P.L.A. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Great show so far. And um, right now we're going to get into uh, our interview that I recorded the other day with Chad Moeller. Chad was, of course, a former major league catcher with the Arizona Diamondbacks, Milwaukee Brewers. Um, ended up playing with organizations like the Yankees and the Baltimore Orioles and has his own baseball clinic. So we're going to play that for you right now. And then uh, right after that, we'll finish the program up. So uh, here's your Chad Moeller interview. Passball Show, MTR Radio. Chad Moeller. Chad, what's going on, buddy? How you doing this morning, John? Pretty good, man. Very good, man. 
just get a little bit about your uh, baseball clinic and you know what, you, what you're doing and how, how people could uh, get involved if they want to.
same time. And then you got to see, got to see what Milwaukee kind of a team that was was developing, but it really wasn't their time yet. I'm sorry, but you guys have gotten worse. 
So great job there by Chad. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you check out his baseball clinic. The information he gave you is there. So, you know, if you want to rewind, check it out. And, uh, you know, hopefully you involve yourself with that, not only with Chad Moeller, but, of course, Buddy Biancolana. And, uh, you know, the thing he's doing for the mental the mental health of baseball and stuff like that. So I think a great job. Cer- certainly you could come out here and really get an idea of uh, certain, certain things that you could do to involve yourself in a game of baseball. And uh, all these players are really out there trying to do things to change lives and help others uh you know in situations like that but um do want to remind everybody this thursday um the june the 6th we over at hooters in princeton new jersey 400 mercer mall mlb draft show live uh john pielli myself will be there along with a lot of other mtr radio hosts and uh we're going to set up some interviews and stuff with different guys that are involved baseball prospectus stuff like that get a little more insight on the players that are drafted and you know everything going on with that so i hope you guys join us if not in person at 400 Mercer Mall. You join us on MTR Radio Thursday. 5 o'clock will be on probably from about 5 to about 9. I'm thinking that's probably when we'll, we'll finish the whole thing. But uh, I said before, it's going to be a momentum type of thing. If we're kicking strong at that point, we'll go on until 10. If not, we'll, we'll cut it off at 9. But, you know, if you guys can't join us, 400 Mercer Mall, uh, Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, check us out at uh, tinyurl.com com slash mtr radio but our last little segment we're going to do before we uh wrap things up for this uh this past ball show uh uh, one thing that kind of intrigued me a little bit was Kirk Gibson joining the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1988. And you say, well, well, you know, obviously he won the MVP that year. He had a big home run off of Dennis Eckersley. Well, what else could he really get out of it? But to me, it kind of signified a little bit of a changing of the guard with Kirk Gibson joining the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1988. Of course, he ends up becoming a Dodger because of the whole collusion cases and everything going on with the, the owners and deciding that they felt that it could do this or do that and pick where these players are going to go and how much money they made. Well, uh, you know, the courts ended up ruling in a player's favor and guys like Kirk Gibson and some others became free agents after the night, you know, before the 1988 season. Gibson signs with the Dodgers, the big name player that they ended up get getting. He obviously has his impact right off the bat. He bumps heads with Pedro Guerrero. And Pedro Guerrero was a Dodger from the 1981 World Series championship. He was a significant member of the, the mid-'80s teams, the 83 team that won the division, the 85 team that won the division, uh, yada, yada, yada. He was a leader. He was one of the big guys on the team. Him and Kirk Gibson didn't see eye to eye. And what ends up happening is not so long before Pedro Guerrero himself is traded, uh, traded to the St. Louis Cardinals, where he ended up having a, a, some good years down there. But Guerrero really was the one Dodger that can kind of trace you back to the late 70s, early 80s team with Steve Garvey at first and Davey Lopes at second, Bill Russell at short and Ron Say at third. Of course, they stuck around until 1981 when they ended up winning that World Series championship. Now you had guys, uh, you know, the real ties to that team were Mike Sosha, Mike Marshall, and Steve Sachs. You know, so Pedro Guerrero was the one big impact player that had a trace back to the 1981 team. From that point, once they realized it was Gibson's team, they felt like they could trade him. And Guerrero, of course, had a very good season in 1982 where he was second in the NL in MVP voting. 85. He, he hit 320 with 33 home runs, 87 RBIs, and 89 
with the with the St. Louis Cardinals shows he still had something left. He hit 311 with 17 homers, 117 RBIs, and 42 stolen bases. He had a very good career: 300 average, 218 homers, 898 RBIs, 1618 hits, 267 doubles in his career. He slugged 480 OPS of 850. Gibson, of course, remembered not only for the home run off of Eckersley, but a 1984 World Series home run off of Goose Gosses, which kind of sealed the deal for the Detroit Tigers beating the San Diego Padres in the 84 series. Now, Gibson, in his career, he hits 268. Not quite Pedro Guerrero's 300, but 255 home runs, 870 RBIs. More home runs, less RBIs, but similar numbers. 1,553 career hits in a career that obviously was shortened because of injury. 260 doubles. Now remember, Guerrero's numbers were very similar. He, he ended up with... 463 slugging percentage and an 817 OPS. Now, let's be honest. Runs scored. Gibson had a little bit of an advantage there. More stolen bases. He was a better base stealer. Now, you you could say, you could make a case that the players really were very similar. And to be honest, could they have, you know, existed at the same time in Los Angeles at that same era? I don't know. I really don't, I really don't know if it was possible because you're looking at one guy and and another guy that could kind of do the same thing. So I think in the end, uh, core heads prevailed with, uh, Guerrero getting traded. Obviously, it worked out for the Dodgers. It worked out the next year with the St. Louis Cardinals with Pedro Guerrero, who certainly proved that he had something left. Listen, want to thank everybody for being part of the program today. Great job. Want to thank Buddy Biancalana, Damon Hollins, uh, Matt Walbeck, Bob Friend, Chad Moeller, and of course, Roger All for being all part of the program. Uh, be back next week. And uh, don't forget, check us out Thursday, 5 to 9. It's going to be the MTR uh, MLB Draft Show. So enjoy yourself.